Broadcasting from the capital, British Columbia, this is West Coast Views. We would like to acknowledge that West Coast Views is recorded on the traditional territory of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Masonic people. Hi there. Thank you for listening to West Coast Views. I'm Nathan Daisley, and I'm the host of today's episode. And I'm joined today by our resident cynic, Mark McInnes. Thanks for joining us, Mark. I'm still cynical. Yeah. And uh, I guess I shouldn't have said joining us because it's it's just you and I today. It's a very special episode for everyone listening in. It's the Mark and Nathan show. Before we go any further, I've just got something I want to ask you about, Mark. And it's something I think that our, our listeners are uh, quite interested in, especially if they've been paying attention to the Facebook posts that we've made uh, in the recent weeks. Mm-hmm. How's your cat doing? The cat, Jack, or uh, his full name is Jackabam is uh doing fine now he went in for surgery on uh on a monday for a partial obstruction um that was starting to become a full obstruction and he's been uh sewn up given some antibiotics takes three people to give him his pills um three people which have to be yeah, you have to hold him down with a mortar and pestle we got to wrap him up like a burrito so you gotta one person has to bring him up and he's complaining the whole time. And you got to set him down on a towel that's put into like a diamond shape. And then you got to wrap him up with it. So he's like this little cat burrito. And then someone has to put on some leather gloves and pry open his jaws. He's a bigger cat. He's, uh, I don't know what, what he is, but um, for a cat with three legs, he, you know, he, he's pretty strong. And uh, another person, the third person, has to um, have crushed up a pill in a mortar and pestle and put in some water and then draw it up into a syringe. No needle, but syringe. And then when the jaws are pried open, you have to shove the syringe in and give him that medicine. Oh and he'll complain. And he starts going, yeah, 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 like for two minutes afterwards. But you've done your job, and he's actually feeling better, and he's actually gained weight. So, oh, there we go. yeah, over like three days, he lost about four pounds or something. Oh, like it, wow. was, it was very rapid. Yeah. It, it looked kind of very unsure what was going to happen. Um, but, no, he's, he's, uh, he's better now. And uh, Jack Abam's probably going to be fine. Good. So glad to hear he's on the, the up and up. Um, but yeah, as here at uh, West Coast Views, we'd just like to extend a, a quick apology to everyone that we've missed the uh, the show the last uh, couple of weeks. It's, uh, yeah, we've been on hiatus, so to say. It's hard to coordinate so many busy people with, you know, politics being our, our focus all the time. It's we, August. The world has taken a break know. from politics. We had nothing really to talk about. Um, nothing was happening in the world. What do you want? nothing yeah. not a single thing <laughs> not a single thing no one's no, been outside and seen not, the the air not, quality yeah the tour of grief by the whale uh the other whale from that same pod um which we're, we're going to talk about today here as well as connect that to uh the some of the other things that have been happening um but mostly it has been happening in the news mm-hmm. which is kind of a big distinction here uh because we've had several reports now talking about a hothouse hearth We've had the New York Times run in, in New York Times Magazine um, uh, a story that it was simply that story uh, from uh, Nathaniel from Nathaniel Rich that was written uh, run in uh, New York Times Magazine. Um, it was just the one article. It's a lengthy one. It's accompanied by these amazing pictures of climate change as it's happening now. But when I say that's been that you know what's been happening in the world has been happening in the news. This is a, these are you know this is the media responding to what's happening in the world. And that is newsworthy in itself because that's that's part and parcel of why the problems have become so bad is the the media has not done an effective enough job in enlightening and informing the uh, the public of the uh, issue of climate change. 
when you look back at the 2016 election, look back at the 2012 election and the 2008 election, um, each one of them, the climate change issue was just dwarfed. It was infinitesimally smaller than the amount of airtime that was given to uh, other issues like um, the debt ceiling or uh, mm -hmm. Donald Trump's mm -hmm. whatever gaffe he was doing this week. His, whatever know, tweet. Yeah. Whatever, yeah, and and you know the 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 cult of of celebrity and just ignoring climate change because it doesn't get good ratings and because it's actually very easily vilifiable. Um, mm -hmm. One of the big problems with climate change is that hippies believe in it, and you can't believe what hippies believe because that makes you a hippie and a traitor to your ideology. And that's again part of the reason why uh, things have gotten so bad as they have is is we've had a few generations of a cold war. And that's really primed people to think of things in terms of political ideology uh, and, and tribes. And as long as hippies believe in something, then the right can't believe in it. So there's no, there, like, it's very difficult to have a conservative viewpoint on, on climate change mm -hmm. um, because it's being, it's seen as like, well, that's, that's a lefty issue. And that's, that's, that's a problem because that's what's gotten us to this point. Which is really interesting, too, because conservatism is is a right-wing thing you know and they they were big proponents of environmental issues to start with when it was around hunting you know those are the people who go out hunting they go out fishing unions were about cutting down trees mining things producing steel because those created more union jobs so it's interesting yeah. now that when we talk about it in a global sense of climate change that they're really opposed to it but really you know environmentalism yeah. caring about parks has always been been quite a conservative thing well it's like that it's it's these these ideologies kind of flip, and I and I really uh, dislike getting into uh, talking about labels and like oh classical liberalism is this and libertarianism is like this <laughs> because I, I, I ugh, just stop it like look at the what is the issue get into the issues mm -hmm. stop you know it's this is it's this weird like this is my identity and I'm taking a while to discuss it because this is just who I am or I don't know why I have to do that voice but um, <laughs> it's 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 preening and I see it with a lot of people in the alt-right and and libertarians and it just annoys me because at the end of the day you're supposed to use whatever background you have that gives you this outlook that you have and apply it to the issues understanding that you don't have a monopoly on the evidence or the truth you don't you don't get to claim a monopoly on on, mm -hmm. the, on the facts um, so that's your tools to look at an issue, to dissect it, to figure out what are we going to do about it. Mm -hmm. And that's and, and so if they're all focused about like, well, this is just what I like as a conservative. This is what I believe. How about you look at the issue and then decide what you think about it before you label yourself and then box yourself in pigeonhole like what you actually think, because that, that's just an excuse to not have to think. Yeah. Well, it'd be wonderful if people were more concerned with evidence based decision making rather than the partisan politics There's that you're talking about. Syllables. Like it, it'd, be, it'd be nicer <laughs> if it had like a more, like an acronym maybe. Yeah, yeah. Like um, YOLO, e, but catchier. What is that? A e B E B D M. That would be evidence-based decision making. It took me a while. Yeah. I got yeah. that though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess it's sort of. I think about it as it ties back to something I really like about being a Green Party member in particular, because um, we we talk about being proponents of evidence-based decision making, but. I guess this also ties back into talking about the news finally covering it, but I've always seen the Green parties being able to to win uh, without actually winning seats or holding power because we continue to bring up a, like the environment as a big issue, right? Spawning from from Germany in particular, they, that's where the big Green Party rise came out of. And during the the 2015 election, you know, we joked about the the Liberals taking our 2008 uh, platform and yeah. taking in all these green values and starting to advocate for the environment. So we've seen 
quite a shift towards talking about climate change in yeah. in government and in the news now. Um, so I, that's always something I've taken a lot of solace well, in. Yeah, th- I mean, I've, I have two things <coughs> about that, both of them cynical, of course. Um, okay. But yeah, it was it was like the Beaverton or the maple syrup uh, or maple trap, uh, I can't remember which it was, syrup trap, um, okay. that I think posted that, uh, that satirical article back in 2015 that the liberals um, uh, declared they're running on the 2008 green platform. Um, I thought you guys made that up in the office, darn it. No, actually, oh. yeah. So that was, uh, you know, I, in, even at the time, though, uh, working for Elizabeth May as I did on, on her campaign, um, even at the time, though, it was it was kind of like uh, there's a bitterness to it. There's like there's a bitterness and, and all satire mm-hmm. about like this is, yeah, we're making fun of how things are, but it's clear we wish it were not this way. Um, and The Onion is, is wonderful about that. And, and I, I think they're one of the best news sources for that because it's out of satire that you can really cut through all that troll BS with the internet, but back to uh, the 2008 green platform. It's at the time it was seen as this is greenwashing. This is this isn't really this isn't genuine. This is you know what's going to play well because this is what's on people's minds right now, and so right. you play that card. Um, and that was the bitterness behind that that syrup trap article. Um, the second thing I have with the point about you know finding, I don't know if I'd say I find solace in it here. There's a very there's very little pleasure I take in going I told you so, like right. it's and and of course we the Greens shouldn't have to be the party of I told you so, um, you know because the world is collapsing here it's a very like tough thing to take solace in. What would be nice is if people go, all right you know what they were right all along you know what you know what the the hippies they actually had it right on this point here, mm-hmm. and then we can start changing our minds as a liberal or conservative or you know uh, a united Alberta party whatever the heck they are, however they want to label themselves, whatever identity they have, as long as they're given credit where credit is due, and we start moving in that direction of evidence-based policymaking, wonderful, EDBM, EBDM. <laughs> whatever our acronym, our new yeah. acronym is. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, let's talk about the beautiful sky today. You know, this is something I yep. have liked about being a security guard is sometimes I'm out in the morning and it's just a beautiful pink sky. And I'm like, oh, great. Like, there's a reason for me to be up at five in the morning. You know, I appreciate some of the, the natural beauty. But I've been really been really missing the blue skies or just seeing any skies or s- seeing real clouds. I just don't like the sky yeah. right now. Actually, it's like post-apocalyptic. It's quite scary. Well, Ryan, um, Ryan. Uh, well, I can't tell you because that's so a quite a compliment calling me Ryan. It's so smoky. Well, sure. You mean, yeah. <laughs> so smoky in here and i'm pretty sure it's from the wildfires um the uh yeah the the smoke from wildfires is is something else and uh especially if you're living in like quenelle williams lake prince george uh it is otherworldly um i don't know i mean if you it looks like hell on earth when you see it it's Mm -hmm. like five hours after sun is supposed to break out and it just looks like this it's ridiculously dark there's ash all over you know people's plants in their gardens um, man, that's scary. One of the interesting thoughts I had about all the forest fires we've been having here in BC, and if people actually go and they watch some documentaries about it and see some of the footage of the aftermath effects, you look at the the sky, and I mean, Alberta's being choked out. Calgary, we've watched some interesting videos about just how smoggy it is. But I think, or I would like to see people think about it as like, this is how terrible the world will be from nuclear holocaust, which seems like a weird thing to compare it to. But just in general, I think that we... I don't know, the more visual effects that we can show people, the more devastation they can actually see. You know, we all are affected by 
by the haze in the sky, you know, people with respiratory problems in particular. But when you, s- you see that and how it affects places that, you know, you can't see the fires anywhere, but you're choked out by the smoke. But then you go and you combine that with just how ruined cities are afterwards. Like they look like they've just been leveled and it just ruins. You can see in, you know, the interesting documentaries on uh, Fort McMurray afterwards. Mm-hmm. And y- they just drive through the town. They show you what it looks like. And it's just it's hellscape. You know, yeah. so I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we, we could get more people to actually care about climate change. If like, we took this a little bit further and we pushed harder on, on showing people the effects of what's happening from our, yeah. from our decisions. Well, I've, I've looked into this before, um, and there's, there's a, a sociologist named Anthony Giddens, um, and he talks about, among other things, structuration, but uh, he also, he's trying to coin it. I don't think it's really necessary. It has to do with him, but... Um, basically the phenomenon that as things go along and climate change gets worse and we have uh, more extreme weather events, the more people will actually start to believe in climate change, right. um, but the less we'll actually have an ability to do anything to stop it. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's the paradox of it. And uh, it's, it sucks, but that part I think is probably the closest to what Nathaniel Rich was talking about when he talks about human nature, is that we're really we're really hamstrung by this biology which which keeps us you know locked into these tribalistic terms of thinking here where it's like as long it's it's not a matter of what is said it's a matter of who said it and as long as we can always link it back to oh those damn hippies then i don't actually have to do anything i can keep going about my life and oh my god there's actually more than enough people who would tell me what i'm doing is more than fine that's one segment and then there's the other segment who are going well god's will Mm -hmm. which is kind of you know it's it's scary in its own ways uh, well, I think there might be also be uh, another segment because I, I like to talk to people about politics. And, and one of the discussions I got in back when we right before we filmed the or filmed but recorded the, the Morgan re- <laughs> back when we recorded the episode about Kinder Morgan, I was speaking about it with, with uh, one of my coworkers and he he works all the time. Like he, he does two jobs. He just works like as much hours as he can pick up. Like he'll sleep in his car. Like if he's like just got an hour between his shifts and, and his big thing is, is like, I just can't, aff- like I want Kinder Morgan to go through cause I need cheap gas prices. Like I can't afford to live really mm-hmm. like it's just outside of his purview to care about, I guess is what I want to say because he just yeah. with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, he's busy taking care of his basic rung, but he's not able to, to think I don't want to say he's not able to think about it, but he's just, he's not concerned with a higher level of that uh, because he's too busy taking care of his basic needs. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who just keep their head yeah. down. They do their job, they pay their bills because they're just trying to survive. So I don't, yeah. I think that's another segment too. Well, they, there's, I mean, poverty has all kinds of, oh yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, uh, poverty and needing to put food on the table and providing for your family that really prioritizes, but it's, it, it also runs against, you know, some of the, like the, I, I define climate change as a, as a problem of our, our technology has outpaced our innovation. So the technology of extracting resources how, has outpaced the innovation of moving on to the next thing. And so we're, we're keep extracting and it's having these consequences and we're not innovating beyond that. And we're just kind of stuck now using, uh, I, I mean, the, the way we're innovating is it's very, deleterious it's very destructive um and we're we're stuck with this world where if you want to have uh do anything then you rely on gasoline 
or you rely on on energy that is provided by fossil fuels and we're stuck with that because there's too much propaganda there's too much power there's too much leverage over the power holders uh by these vested interests in the in the oil lobby and and uh these um, organizations that benefit by the status quo here that are much more reluctant because you know as a, another rule of mine is that conviction follows interest if it's in your interest to uh, maintain the status quo, you're going to speak with conviction that this is the right thing to do. Mm. And they certainly have enough resources to make that an effective message with the public and through lobbying with the power holders. Um, but that's a world people have to live in. And if they're being slowly crunched down by, by the vagaries of uh, our society, which places so much emphasis on, on if you... Uh, do well in society, then it's because you deserved it. And if you don't do well in society, that's also because you deserved it. And so it makes you have to work harder to get ahead. And you then, you, you know, that's not even including that you have to feed your family. Mm-hmm. And now this, it, it, it really changes your priorities to that. Like, you know, we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy. That's a good, that's a good thing to bring up because it's hard to think about things long-term when you have immediate needs you need fulfilled in the short term, um, like feeding your family, like taking care of yourself, like having enough cheap enough gasoline in order to get to your next job, um, getting yourself out of that poverty, getting yourself out of a, a place here where you're you're um, uh, reliant on the fossil fuel industry um, and the the means of living that they have provided us. That's an amazingly difficult proposition to ask people to do. And I, and I think um, previously, I mean, this is why a lot of people don't like liberals and greens. And, and, and uh, when they start talking about like, just get a just go get a uh, electric car here. It's like I drive a Tesla. I drive a, a, a Leaf. Um, and it's like, well, this is that, that's nice for you. But you can afford to care about these things. And I have to feed my like I, I have to feed myself. I have to get to my other jobs here. This is what I care about because it's my it's in my immediate interest to care about these things. And so there's kind of like a luxury of being green. And that's been historically a problem uh, with with trying to have a, uh, a, a solution um, to both poverty and the environmental issue. Yeah, that's a, an interesting point you bring up in particular about the, the sort of the privilege of being able to sp- think about the environment. Because uh, our first Green MP was elected in uh, Saanich Gulf Islands, which is a pretty well-to-do riding. You know, Sydney's the the big uh, home homestead of that. No, that's not the word I want to say. Yeah, the yeah, the, the farmstead. <laughs> the farmstead. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> you know, and, and Sydney's the big so base we'll, of we'll that call one. It stronghold. We yeah, stronghold. Call it, yeah. Um, and you know, and then Andrew Weaver and Oak Bay Gordon Head is another affluent area. Affluent. No, I should have just said it was an affluent area. Um, an affluent farmstead. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it is. It is places that had the the ability to be concerned about something else other than you know jobs their basic Mm -hmm. security the you know the i don't know i guess the the mainstay staples of of politics of the past you know what's going on with jobs and how free is my market um (laughs) the freer the market the freer the people um so yeah i think i think that's a big part of it um no i i i like that point because um there's there's a connection between uh how much money you have to i mean you can you can start thinking longer term uh the more you have resources to think long term 
Right. If you don't have resources, then you're you're often. I mean, there's actually like when you when you do studies on deep poverty and what that does psychologically to people's brains, it's it's actually extremely destructive. Um, if you take someone who's been homeless and you put them in a in the you know a four bedroom house or something like that, there's a good chance they're not going to be able to maintain it because a they don't have necessarily the li- they didn't develop those life skills, partially because they didn't give it to them or for whatever reason here. But there's there's another underlying psychological reason why a lot of people who have been homeless can end up homeless again. Um, if you are in survival mode for a long period of time, your brain kind of gets reset. And so it's uh, when they do interviews of people who uh, who are you know uh, go uh, like recurring homeless, um, they tell them it's like you know what? I'm so used to things not working out for me that I'm just ready to pack up and I'm I'm ready to become nomadic again. And like that's that's such a bummer to mm-hmm. to um, to think about. And it shows like we are a homeless problem in Victoria, our homeless problem in BC, in Canada. Um, we've let it get this bad because we've been thinking I don't want you know this freeloader to have something that I worked hard for which we can dissect on its own but um, it uh, it gets bad because we've ignored it and it gets a lot worse because we didn't deal with it before because even the rich don't think far enough ahead to deal with poverty and that's that's that bullshit tribalism thing again yeah um, oh yeah I like in particular, you mentioning how when you have more resources, it's it's easier to think long term, and I think that that really applies to the the shift from fossil fuel energy sources to the clean tech sector because we have these established giants now with with very very deep pockets who receive massive government subsidies still despite how deep their pockets are. I mean, it's over three billion dollars a year from Canada alone. Oil and gas companies receive in in subsidies. Um, and some of those subsidies, uh, one of them we have, I think it's a BC one, it's a deep drilling credit. And it's for companies that drill and don't actually find a reserve. So we can help cover the cost of that. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we're, we're subsidizing their failures. Um, but, you know, when they, when they have this, this massive backlog, or not massive backlog, but massive amount of money and resources that they can spend on, on propaganda, as you mentioned, it's a lot easier to maintain the status quo. I mean, Victoria itself used to have an electric trolley back in 1904. Um, Sorry, electric trolley. Oh, trolley. Trolley. I yeah. Heard Charlie. I'm just like this is a really outdated <laughs> term I haven't heard. Um, and you know, in the states, used to be covered with with rail lines and had a lot more uh, public transportation infrastructure to start with. But then, the oil and gas companies were such big proponents of of gas. Uh, powered buses going in so they paid to rip up a lot of the the tracks Mm -hmm. and then when they got sued about being a monopoly they just they just paid it off you know because they had Mm -hmm. those resources to deal with with the government's retribution to their actions uh, because they were taking their own self-interest and putting it first right getting more gas buses uh, going means more people buying gas more reliance on it the more that you build society into needing your product especially when you're taking away uh, what the other pieces as well um so yeah, I think there, when you have the resources, these oil and gas companies in particular, you're, you're able to do so much. You're able to engage in the political system, donate to campaigns. You're able to go out, try and create yourself more markets, try and change up society and see where you can inject your product more. And it's just going it, to, you know, they've, we talk about how oil is in everything because they've been able to get to that point. Yeah. So it's just that much tougher when you're a small startup company trying to, to break into the market or you're the clean tech sector trying to prove yourself and, and develop new products. Well, yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point. And, and I see so much of that with 
like say say you're that person who's like, I made this device that can allow gasoline fumes to be reused so that you can get a lot more mileage out of it. And um, there's, I mean, that was a famous story back in like as the 70s or the 80s of someone inventing this device that did that and they go missing and the device goes missing. And there's like, you know, men in black that show up at the, at the house and, and, you know, so they're not seen from again. Um, I, I might be botching a bit of that, but uh, there's, it was this famous thing about essentially you have these vested interests um, that have that they're, they're entrenched. Like they have the power, they're at the top, they are the establishment. And you come in rocking the boat with um, either, you know, really inconvenient facts or inconvenient truths, uh, you know, to quote what's his face. But um, <laughs> you, you also might come in with like a product. You, know, you might be yourself an entrepreneur or, or someone in the business community here who has a great idea that is addressing a need that society has. And um, it still runs against, so it runs against the grain of what the people in the establishment want you to do. And they're going to leverage the resources against you either by sending men in black to your house or, you know, putting out a, a misinformation campaign against you or lobbying the government and the, and the decision makers to make it that much harder for you to enter the market and have that any, any kind of an effect. Yeah, and I think we almost we, we almost can't blame corporations for doing misinformation campaigns because it's their their vested interest. It's their job to be beholden to their shareholders. But we know that they're willing to do potentially whatever they need to. Yeah. When we look at big tobacco, right, that huge misinformation campaigns, the studies were coming out talking about the health effects of tobacco. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's also talk about how Exxon was trying to suppress their own internal studies as well into, into climate change because they have a, a vested interest in keeping their company going. And it's also, you know, it's the executive of the company's job to be beholden to the shareholders. Mm. So it's it's a it's a tough sort of dynamic that they're set up into, unless you you go out and you create a company with the intention of doing good instead of just making profits. Um, yeah. But it's a uh, it's it's rough because we know we know that companies out there are going to be willing to uh, to stoop to to lying, you know, to well, doing and, misinformation. And what they're doing is also they're they're I mean when they appeal to people on those grounds of like I, some of this problem is is a failure of public education to really prepare us for how the world actually works. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think if people were, were not as trusting about uh, some of the information they receive from these large corporations uh, or from any large organization that has a vested interest here but understood how to analyze the information they're being given, um, and if they had a, a media that wasn't so entangled necessarily with the power structure or with the establishment, uh, that they would be given um, possibly better information about how, uh, how the world is, is working and, and what is going on. Like if they had the investigative report that talking about, uh, like a, I think it was The Guardian that broke it, um, with, uh, with ExxonMobil suppressing its own research back in, in the 70s that, uh, climate change is in fact man-made um, and uh, also these um, you know these astroturf organizations here uh, that it, it took sometimes it, it took many years before it really started to have effect it wasn't until the 90s that the tobacco industry really uh, took a hit and it was like this massive uh, payout that they had to do because they were lying about cancer and uh, but they were putting out all these research groups and studies saying that no, there's actually not a carcinogenic effect, or no, there's actually still some doubt. You know, as long as they can instill some doubt, then enough of the public will go, well, I'm okay with this because I smoke and you know I've been fine, and I know somebody that lived until 100 and they were smoking every day. Um, 
And it's like it's that enough of that so that there's not going to be enough pressure put on the decision makers to actually change things. But thank God by the 90s that changed. And mm-hmm. now slowly it's starting to change here. But when when back to your point, though, about, you know, it's like we can't blame corporations for, uh, you know, acting in their own interest here. Um, it also calls into question, again, that, that question of, uh, of public education. What do we understand a corporation is? Because the timelines they work with is a lot longer than a human being, attention span certainly, uh, but also a lot longer than a human being's life. And so like that, that was part of the problem with the United uh, Citizens United um, decision in, the, in 2010 with the Supreme Court and the states that said uh, corporations and uh, uh, you know, non-individuals can give an unlimited amount of money because money cancels free speech here. The big thing with that, um, and it, it was like a it was a four three decision or something. It's very like split down the middle, uh, which underscores like why important how how important it is that Donald Trump has two Supreme Court picks now, um, because that's going to affect things for decades and decades. Um, but the big thing with that was you are giving a, an ability to speak to a, an organization to something that is not a human. Um, but is a collection of humans that have a certain rules and an epistemology and an outlook and its own interests. And it's working with these time horizons that are far longer and broader than any one single human. And so to say that they have free speech because they count as an individual, that seriously misreads the nature of what a corporation is and what it's going to do. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I've taken a, a few business classes. Look at me so smart. Um, <laughs> it was only in high school, though, not in university. Um, <laughs> But, you know, like corporations, like people, people will incorporate themselves or incorporate their business so they can avoid liability, um, you know, so they, they pay different taxes, they can save more money. You know, like there, there are, are particular reasons why these things have been set up and they're not set up as individuals. They're not set up as, as people. So I, uh, I agree that it's sort of a, a perversion of, of the rules or the intentions that the rules have been set out with. Well, we talked about a bit about like rationality and a rationalistic outlook on things. I mean, business really is that place where you can have a pretty rational outlook on things because that's that's where you, you have an understanding of the rules. You see, you have to read the rules and understand how it works in order to realize and, and appreciate that if you incorporate, you're going to reduce your liabilities. Um, and that's where you start making those business decisions, especially because you're not really working with your money. You're working with a lot of people's money. Um, and you have to make decisions for a long term here. That's that's often why businesses can be better run than uh, a lot of other organizations um, because there's more of an emphasis on, on good management with that. Um, so credit where it's due with that, but let's not mistake the nature of what a, a corporation is here. If we say that a corporation can do certain things better than government, we have to ask what is the point of that corporation to do so as opposed to what a government is and what that's supposed to be accountable for because good management practices being able to look long term and and make those uh, wise choices, that's something each individual and each organization can do, not something that is monopolized by corporations. I really like that you you brought that up and uh, long term management because I think it ties back right into the wildfires really well. Because mm. um, a big part of the reason why we're having such large scale fires right now is we because have all of these forests we haven't cut down yet. <laughs> no, okay, where are you going with that? I'm lost. <laughs> really hurt a lot to listen to. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's because of how, of how we have been managing it. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, by, by suppressing every single fire and the attempt to put out every single one, we've allowed fuel to build up. Uh, we haven't been necessarily... Yeah, like fuel management has not been something we've done. Um, you know, we've 
grown different different trees as we've been managing our logging industry mm. in particular switching to pine because it grows faster but then as climate change plays into that mountain pine beetles have been been spreading and have been wiping out trees mm. and a dead tree is a lot easier to burn than a live tree in fact a lot of the trees here a in, lot of dead things are easier to burn than a live thing cut yeah. that part out <laughs> <laughs> keep saying the best things today um and yeah, so there's been there's been different uh, management sections that have been working together, uh, different different interests, and and really just learning from from our mistakes is something that we have to be doing as well, and adjusting our management styles as we realize that this this policy of absolute suppression is not working for us and leading to greater fires. We have to adapt to that. I mean, w- last year we lost over a million hectares of land um, mm. to forest fires, um, and we've had. Uh, this year, we've had over we've had one thousand eight hundred and eighty five forest fires as of yesterday. Um, that's a lot of forest fires, which is they count forest fires in BC as zero point zero one hectare of uh, land on fire. Yeah. Um, but uh, this year, we've lost five thousand nine hundred and eighty seven thousand. Sorry, this year a total area of. 598,762 uh, hectares have burned. Um, I feel that also, uh, I mean, the, the, the sense of scale for it, right? Like, so California also had its largest wildfire yet, mm-hmm. um, and it destroyed 12 structures. So it's kind of like, eh, I mean, it kind of shows, like, just how big the province is and how big, like, the, uh, the, the land is. But it, we also have this illusion in North America that, that, uh, we, we've always had a plan, uh, uh, sorry, a land of plenty. Mm-hmm. And that gives us this idea that we, we can keep going with our profligate ways and we can keep um, living outside of our means or beyond our means because there's always going to be more. And that, like, the, I, I think the two big issues with, like, you know, when we talk about long-term systemic issues, um, LTSI, <laughs> LTSI EBDM um, is that it's you have to both wrap your brain around long term, which is something humans I don't think are very well and naturally uh, able to do, and systemic, which is also another thing people aren't very well able to do. So there's actually a connection between cutting down all these trees here and then screwing with the rivers, uh, the salmon bearing rivers which then goes on to screw with the, uh, the amount of food supply for the orca whales. So there's kind of like this, you, you see the food chain at work here and human decisions and how it affects that, um, that I don't think we would otherwise be thinking about if, if we didn't have uh, uh, you know, these great articles coming out talking about that. That's very true. And something else we have to be incredibly concerned about related to forest fires and salmon is it releases tons of ash and runoff into the, into the water, into the streams, in particular, after high intensity fires and high intensity fires uh, burn all like organic matter in the dirt to a substantial distance, mm-hmm. uh, but it makes the soil hydrophobic, uh, so water runs off of it, causing uh, more landslides, more runoff, further polluting right. and coating the rivers, yeah, yeah. Um, further killing off the salmon. Um, like I can hear the dog just kind of like pitter patter around, and she sneezes in the background too every so often. So, I'm just so the third co-host today. <laughs> <laughs> What's your dog's name, though, Mark? Her name is Chanel. Oh, so yeah. cute. I know. Do you put Chanel number five on her? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it smells good enough on her own. doesn't need that. 
Um, but no, that's that's actually a really good point about the. Uh, I didn't know that part about the hydrophobic thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, Vice News did a sweet documentary on all the BC forest fires. That's where I learned yeah, that one from. Check that out. Um, there's there's also that connection between uh, uh, landslides uh, and uh, sorry, not not landslides, but, but flooding. Right. So mm-hmm. you don't have enough vegetation to absorb all the water, so that when you do get these ridiculous rainfalls and whatever melting, you know, there's less melting here, but you also get we, we have more chances of higher rainfall within a shorter amount of time um, with climate change. And so uh, it just goes right through the ground and uh, increases the chance of, of like flash floods as well as the mudslides, which um, California had one of its more deadly years last year um, mm-hmm. as a result of that. Yeah. Well, and as we continue to damage our, uh, our rivers and our salmon bearing ability, you know, we continue to risk our wild salmon, which is the healthiest salmon we have to grow and offer and sell here in BC, mm-hmm. substantially healthier than, than farmed salmon. Um, but we're, yeah, we'll be taking away the food supply for, for our killer whales and our orca whales here in uh, British Columbia, but also everything else that eats fish or what the fish eat. You know, we're, we're damaging quite a large part of our ecosystem yep. here. And it, it's very tough to tell how much damage we're doing to the oceans because it, it's very much out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're surrounded by water, but we see the idyllic top of it. We don't see, like, you know, the 90% of the earth that's underwater. Well, whatever. <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> it's, it's like three quarters or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's covered in water. Well, and BC salmon can swim all the way over to Japan um, yeah. through their life cycle. Wow. You know, like, we... Okay. like the impact of our salmon and how far they go and how many animals they feed and what they, they take out of the ocean. And yeah. like the, the, the part they play to the global ecosystem is just massive. And I don't know how you're going to be able to track how much of an effect that has in the, in the far off reaching distances. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so crazy. And, and I don't know, it's, it's the whales thing that really, it's, it's a bummer. You saw the, you know, that people are calling it the tour of grief. People are talking about, you know, the, the anthropomorphization of, uh, an orca whale like is it is it really grieving does it really just not know that its kid is dead um or is it shaming us and and we should feel shamed um because we've we've done it to its land we've we've created ocean acidification we've killed off a lot of the coral reefs which provide a lot of the food mm-hmm. uh we've warmed up a lot of the waters we've releasing methane from the ocean floors not to mention the permafrost which also there's a great uh vice bit about that um which looks at uh actually uh getting more bison onto the tundra of russia um because they will eat all the um all the vegetation all the trees and they will they will kill a lot of that um which leaves more grassland which is colder in the winters which keeps the permafrost frozen because if you unfreeze that if that thaws that permafrost methane gets released Mm -hmm. and on top of other like things like germs and, and bacteria which have not been in the atmosphere or in in any you know circulation in millions of years that stuff again then gets released and you have these giant massive uh you know holes to hell um all pockmarking russia right now um because it's it's mostly covered in permafrost and a lot of it is now thawing um so there's different ways to deal with here and a lot of it does come back to like what is our relationship to animals what is our relationship to food what is our relationship to energy yeah, that's so true. Are those uh, pockets to hell like the uh, uh, Hell's Gate they have in Russia? That There's that. Yeah, I think it's like Uzbekistan where they have this. Uh, this uh, it, it's it's always on fire. It used to be like a a, a mine um, that they decided is like that's too dangerous, so they lit it on fire, and it's been going for like thirty five years. And so you, it's it's massive, and it's just it's always on fire, and it's just this big hole to hell. 
Um, but these ones here, it's uh, it actually causes giant explosions. So some really large explosions mm. will happen because the methane gets released suddenly and it blows up. So there's actually footage of them. Um, the they're on top of a frozen lake, and so someone will uh, will hold a uh, um, a torch, and they'll hold it up above, above uh, the the ice, and someone will take a big ice pick and they'll start jabbing through the ice. And as soon as they break through, the gas escapes and a giant plume of flame shoots out because all that methane is collecting on the bottom. It's trying to come out of the water, and so it, it just blows out. And methane is 22 times more uh, worse than any other greenhouse gas. Yeah, that's incredibly true. Um, I, my th big thought when you were saying people poking holes and lighting methane is that they were going to blow up. I just don't know, like, why, why would you want to go and do that? Why would you want to go and test out this thing and just see how it goes? It's really just a side note that I wanted to bring up about yeah. their... Or well, my perceived stupidity of them. Well, it's, uh, I mean, uh, you, I'll, I'll show you the, the video later. Again, it's, uh, if you look up um, on, uh, on a permafrost on Vice News, um, you'll, you'll see this video come up. Uh, but they're doing a one to prove a point, and B, I'm not sure if maybe there's like a, there's a, there's a you know, safety valve effect where you're just trying to let off some of the steam mm. um, that's building up here. But, there's, there's so much methane uh, locked into the earth, either at the bottom of the ocean or in this permafrost here, that we're going to hit this positive feedback loop where we, we get beyond this place where greenhouse gas now uh, will be released into the, the atmosphere, and there's nothing we can do about it because we, we created the loop to happen. We created the cycle to happen. And that's going to get us to this place where we're going to be looking at 50 degrees Celsius days where nothing can get done where like society halts to a stop. People will have to become mole people living underground um, when this happens here. And that's that's the point of that article about hothouse earth, uh, which is looking at we're, we're, I mean, there's so many things when we think about like an apocalyptic world, we forget that a lot of these movies here, they don't touch on just how, because it's very, it's, it's a bit harder. It's a bit more tangible to, relay to the viewer temperature so if you have a city that's like crumbling in post-apocalypse and it's like 55 degrees celsius um it's it's impossible to do anything and it, it would just be like this hellish landscape there's an actual hell on earth and we're gonna have more of those days and that's that's something we know we're doing and we're, we're slowly moving towards that by releasing methane gas but again it comes back to like what is our relationship to food what is our relationship to energy and how are we managing that and it's just there's just so many things that tie tie into climate change too i mean if you're concerned about the migrant crisis migrant crisis it's just going to continue to get worse and worse i mean africa um, the middle east already ravaged by by droughts and by famines mm -hmm. uh, but to continue to increase the temperature in those areas is going to make it worse and wasn't it last year that Europe had just terrible heat waves and, and people were dying from the heat waves in Europe? Yeah, it was I, like hundreds of people died. Um, there, was, there was a time, I think, in Russia where they had like, I think it was in the thousands. And, and it, was, wow. it was, yeah, it was, it was typically Russian, um, you know, people would be drinking a bottle of vodka because they were thirsty and then they go swimming and they drown. Mm. Um, I don't know why that's typically Russian here, but it's just like, <laughs> first of all, you're thirsty and you go for vodka. <laughs> You know, everything is, is just so interconnected. You know, going to have salmon for dinner tonight. 50% uh, mm. of the world's salmon, or not 50% of the world's salmon, but 50% of the world's uh, fish uh, for food is now produced from, from fish farms, um, which is huge here in, in BC. 
but also talk because you were talking about reefs earlier and the the damage to them and how that affects the orca whales but i mean our our fish farms have been put over reefs and we'll just poop on it and kill them you know we talked about glass reefs uh in one of our our recent episodes i think when we're talking about fish farms so if you haven't listened to fish farms episode go listen to it right now it's really good but they uh they killed a prehistoric reef because they pooped on it so much you know like it's just these little things we're trying to do to produce food are making just such huge impacts into the environment as well taking away from the wild salmon's habitat but also taking away from the orcas you know, it's just and you know that's a, and that's a good point here to talk about. Um, you know, businesses not making these long term decisions as well as they could because if the, uh, the reason why they're not having land based fish farms is because it costs more. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if we have a land based fish farm here, um, anytime that there's a disease, it's completely self contained, and you can just. You, I mean, unfortunately, you have to wipe out the whole population, but then you can start over again after cleaning the tanks, and you can do it. But it doesn't at least spread now to wild salmon. And that's that's one of the big benefits of having land-based one, and it's something that like Norway started to do more of. But we are far behind on that, even though we have Norwegian companies who are operating these uh, open water uh, uh, and ocean water uh, fish farms. Um, but yeah, it's it's like the if they were thinking ahead, and they were like, you know what, we're going to put in some extra money because ultimately, so that's what's going to come down to here. It's that the establishment doesn't want to spend more money, um, especially when it means you have to give credit to the people that you don't like anyway. And right. they've historically not liked for a very long time, um, so they don't want to pay that money here, which is why, you know, the the uh, people that want to see climate action need to put so much pressure on the means of uh, both propaganda and power, so that there's actually an effect of forcing the establishment to adapt, and adapt in a way that's actually going to prevent the worst of climate change here. Um, when a big cost for uh, on land fish farming is. is power to deal with all of it right because it's so uh, energy consuming the running the tanks and the process of it um we go back to talking about clean energy again yep. you know there uh my one friend uh phil who lives in ontario recently uh, just the other day sent me this video yeah, yeah phil from ontario yeah yeah, yeah phil yeah. he sells solar door-to-door yeah. um actually doesn't do door-to-door as much anymore he's now like their uh, uh business lead director or something like that he's killing it out there um but he sent me a video on uh recent uh like clean energy uh inventions tech whichever you have them uh but like it's like small scale uh small scale hydro uh dams like little ones that you can just attach to any variation and level to like a river so you have things like that they now are working on making uh balloons that do wind turbines so you send it way up into the air where it's two to three times uh Mm -hmm. stronger the wind gusts so they're bringing in more power but they don't have to like build the actual stands for them to fly them way up there so you're able to produce power pretty much anywhere in the world now wow. with these balloons um you know we they're developing new uh tidal dams is sort of what they're called yeah um and like this one dam is uh able to produce power for like a million homes or something no that's too large but that seems right at the same time oh god i gotta listen to it yeah, so basically, butchering um, it. yeah, so but needless, needless to say, Doug Ford is dead set against this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But it, it seems that we're, you know, we the innovation is catching up. You know, we talked about how our innovation wasn't keeping up with technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that it, it's catching up. We're developing. Oh, wait, I don't want people to quote me on that. That is, I'm thinking about it as I'm, as <laughs> just posing I'm saying, I'm just like, did I write that? Like, what did I, sounds like something 14-year-old Mark would say. <laughs> <laughs> um 
But, you know, there there seems to be these new energy solutions that are coming out that'll make it easier to, to deal with these things. So not only will we be able to have them contained on land, so we'll be able to take away the diseases, they won't be pooping on glass reefs, we're not going to be burning fossil fuels to power mm. uh, these fish farms. Like, it seems that things are, are coming together to have a, a very sustainable fish farm industry mm-hmm. um, here in BC. Hopefully, we're able to, uh, to lead the way in that, which will help our whales, because fish farms yeah. are not good for whales. No, they're they're not, and and you know what? It's it's when you have things like lab grown meat as well. Let's also yeah. bring into like factory farming, which I'm I'm so against factory farming. I I think everybody, and uh, like I'm I don't believe necessarily in veganism for both dietary and and uh, uh, selfish reasons, um, but I also think it's important uh, that people understand and appreciate that their food comes from an animal. It doesn't come from uh, the store. And we live under this weird illusion that, um, you know, we just go to the store and we get food from there. It doesn't. It, it has to come from somewhere. It has to come from an actual animal. And we should appreciate that, which is why I think if people were hunting and people, like, if everybody had to kill an animal, I mean, you know, not all 7 billion, but if everybody, you know, at, at some point had to kill an animal, um, you would appreciate more just what's involved in it. And there would probably be more vegetarians and, and vegans as, as a result of that. Um, but it's also because, like, the, the sheer animal cruelty we have towards animals in these factory farms but uh, i I mean i've read about this before here but 70 percent of all antibiotics is used in factory farming prophylactically to make sure that animals will grow up i mean they're literally standing living and eating in each other's excrement yeah and it's like this is a breeding ground for antibiotic resistant infections um so that's why we use more and more powerful drugs and steroids not to mention um to uh, to make sure that they can you know grow in a in a fraction of the time and we can get them to market. Um, there's also I mean if you have lab grown meat that's a good substitute uh, that you know if people have to go to the squeamish factor the really squeamish factor though is uh, bugs. Mm. Bugs are way more like I I have a very tough time with this I'm wrestling with it but again credit where it's due. If we wanted to make a real dent in uh, in climate change and and reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. We would have like, we would have uh, a bug industry where we could eat. Uh, we can make like you know roach food or whatever. <laughs> yes, maybe not roaches because I mean like bugs are so nutritionally dense. Yeah. Um. And and we don't appreciate that because it's got a, a gooey factor. It's an icky factor um, that we have to get over. But at the same time, we do. We we kind of have that right with. Uh, it just depends. It depends on. It's very culturally. Uh, you know, some people will like we, we eat parts of the animal that other people won't eat, and other other parts of the world where they're actually you know a lot more survival based, and a lot more like you know what food is scarce, and we have to treat the animal as, as a little more holy than wasting it as, as North Americans would. They eat all parts of the animal. Um, I mean that that's the kind of appreciation about our connection to food and energy and the world that we need to make if we want to start moving away from this um, intense greenhouse gas emission and move towards this hothouse earth that we're being warned about. Yeah, I was watching a Joe Rogan podcast recently. I watch a lot of him. But uh, they were talking about hunting, and he's a big advocate I wanted, for I it. I want for the record here that um, it's Nathan now saying, uh, mentioning Joe Rogan. <laughs> it's not Mark this time. Yeah. Um, but they were talking about hunting, and, you know, listening to them describe it, it, you know, it, it's just, it's seems like so much more of the ethical way than by factory farming. You know, you have this animal who's living out in the forest, it's living its life, it's doing its animal thing, and, you know, you're supposed to line up the shots, so you make sure that it goes down when you hit it. Um, 
and then it's living its life and then all of a sudden it's not you know and it lived its best life right up until that moment when you you instantly killed it uh fingers yeah. crossed that you instantly kill it as you should uh whereas you have factory farmed cows that are standing on their own poop you know it's just that that disconnect once again and i yeah you know they they might be dumb animals some people like to think but you know that they they have yeah. feelings you know that they feel pain and what wants to stand still for its life yeah, I mean, I have a terrible sense of humor, but I, I am deeply compassionate about uh, not just other people, but also animals. And uh, they're like, you know, when you when you see someone with a pet pig or someone with like a pet cow and, or like any of those videos on, on, online, like from a dodo uh, with it, you, you really just appreciate it, like just how absolutely adorable and and, you know, full of, of sentience and feeling um, that these animals have. And that also underscores like the tragedy of the orca whale mother who was parading around and shaming humans and, and, and just, you know, expressing its grief. Um, it, it's a starving, dying population. It's endangered. And these are smart enough animals. I think on some level they, they make the connection that humans are the ones who are harming them. Like they, they, they also suffer intergenerational trauma. Um, it's, it's often why like many animals know to get the hell away from humans because i mean that was why the dodo died is because they didn't it wasn't smart enough to realize like that humans were so quick into its population um just walking up to it and killing it that that's what exterminated the, the dodos um they just didn't realize like they weren't able to pass on those epigenetics and those genes to be like that's a human get the f out of here um because humans will eat it and uh and like i, I think whales um have that i mean they're like 90 years old a lot of them they're, some of them are well over 100 years old they have to have some kind of understanding uh what kind of shitbirds humans are <laughs> <laughs> well whales they even have their own language they're able to to communicate with one another like they they have yeah, intelligence that's true. yeah you yeah. know like they're not idiots um yeah. they're not cows <laughs> yeah they're not, they're just dumb cows yeah <laughs> well that's uh, that was that south park episode right where uh people were, were uh you know blaming the Japanese for killing all these whales and dolphins. Like, oh, how could you do that? And all this here. And then uh, Japan eventually, Japan, yeah, (laughs) Japan uh, invades and starts killing all the the chickens and cows. And they're, they're, it it was just, again, satire, satire, the bitterness of it. But it's really satire and cynicism. It's, it's like a disappointed romantic, which is what I would ultimately describe myself as. A disappointed romantic. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, seems like a good place to uh, wrap things up. Um, do you want to say thanks for listening? Now I feel like I should say it. Now I feel no, like there's should, not yeah, a... Okay. Yeah. So I'm looking at you with my stupid cow-like stare. <laughs> like, All right. And that seems like a wonderful place to uh, sort of wrap up the show. Uh, nice little ending note. Um, yeah, thank you everyone for, for listening in. We've missed being able to, uh, to talk to you for a while and engage in that dialogue with, uh, with you guys. And, you know, it's, a uh, it's a late road love. Such positive feedback such as well. Positive. Uh, and, uh, again, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, concerns, you want us to take on any particular topic here, um, send us an email, send it to, uh, mark at westcoastviews.ca or ryan at westcoastviews.ca if you have any <laughs> Okay, my- <laughs>